we bring you independent voices and reasonably polite dialogue across the political divide. I'm Ed Fallon, your host, and we are coming to you today from America's heartland, Des Moines, Iowa. If you value what we do, and I sure hope you do, we could sure use your support. Uh, visit the uh, donations page on the Fallon Forum website. And if you run a small business or involved with a nonprofit doing good work in the world, uh, if you're doing bad work, go somewhere else. If you're doing good work and you want to help sponsor this program, please consider that. And uh, speaking of sponsors, thanks to Gateway Marketing Cafe at Des Moines' locally owned grocery and specialty food store. Gateway's Cafe is open for dine-in, carry-out, and delivery service seven days a week. Gateway has an excellent local produce selection and also catering and floral services. That's Gateway Marketing Cafe. Thanks also to Architecture by Synthesis, adamantly and actively supporting the mission of the Fallon Forum and community radio stations. Owner Mark Klipschup knows we have to build better health for people and the planet, and the services he provides are committed to that goal. That's Architecture by Synthesis. So I am fed up with infighting among so-called progressive organizations, and dang it, I'm going to talk about it later in this program. Also later in the program, we'll be discussing the scary revelation recently that uh, the upper Midwest, uh, well, uh, the, the Iowa down through Texas, I guess, should prepare itself for heat indexes of 125 degrees in the new climate era. Yeah. Uh, and then for our farm and food segment, um, kind of con connected to that, Kathy Burns and I are going to be talking about five staple crops that might actually do well in the new climate era. But first, it is my pleasure to welcome Margaret Buckton to the program. She's the executive director of the Urban Education Network here in Iowa. Margaret and I go back a long ways working on education issues at the Iowa State House and coaching soccer together for, what, I think, five years? Oh, yeah, that was, gall decades ago, it seems. It was probably decades ago, literally decades ago. <laughs> I wonder if we could still even run to keep up with those kids. Anyway, probably. <laughs> So what to keep up with? Um, so much in the news, uh, and education is uh, front and center across the country. Um, schools are facing some really serious challenges. Um, what do you, I, I mean, the school year is just starting, and um, what do you, what, what, how's it going, Margaret? How, how are teachers, faculty, parents dealing with some of the, um, the crazy talk relevant to book, ban, book uh, you know, banning books to, um, to micromanaging what teachers do, to uh, basically turning schools into fortresses. I mean, I'm throwing all these at you at once and letting you pick which one you <laughs> want to start with. Oh, my gosh. I could talk. We could have a program on each one of those. All right, well, maybe we will. <laughs> maybe we should someday. But um, I, I want to take a breath for a second and tell you a couple of the really amazing things that are going on because there's been so much in the news about all this other stuff okay. that I think it helps our staff and our public to know that there's some things in Iowa that are great. Good. Um, so, so we are third in the nation among the states who, use, who test more than 50% of their high school students on the ACT, which is that college entrance test. And that's a good measure of the kind of education our kids are getting in high school. Uh, we are first in the nation in high school graduation, and it's not, you know, it's not just the, the demographic that Iowa is known for in the past of our middle-class uh, Caucasian students. Hispanic students have climbed by over nine percentage points 
since um, 2011. Our kids who don't speak English have increased almost nine percentage points in 2011, and our African-American students have gone up over eight percentage points since that time as well. And as we're becoming more diverse, it's great to talk about how we're delivering education to, um, to the students that, you know, we're lucky to have in our schools to teach everybody about the mm, world. Right. And then, and then our um, condition of education report that our Department of Education puts together every year talks about more of our students taking um, what we call higher level courses. So the percent of students mm -hmm. taking Algebra 2 now is a higher level mathematics class um, that is now over 82% of all high school students. And we have half of our students taking even higher level math than that, 88% taking world languages, mm. about three quarters take chemistry, um, so what, and, and we have new high school computer science now over 10%, and we've just recently embarked on that in the last couple of years. So it's, it's nice to think about those things that are preparing that's our a, kids for the future. Yeah, that's a lot, and that's, uh, that's, that's all good news. And how come we don't hear about that, just the bad stuff? Isn't that, isn't that strange? So I try and talk about it because we've had so many conversations about the challenges, and I really want our teachers and our staff and, and our parents to be congratulated yeah. for all the hard work that we've been doing in Iowa School. So those, those positive numbers, do you see similar trends elsewhere in the country other than just here in Iowa? Um, you know, we have seen closing of the gap and uh, and elevated expectations in high school, although, you know, we still have those high rankings in graduation rate, and they're, although they're going up around the country, even though Iowa was near the top, uh, we continue to to grow in that, and mm -hmm. I think that's a that's a good sign that we're not resting on our laurels. Good, yeah. So about those challenges. Yeah, yeah. So there are there are many. I think um, one of the biggest challenges I, for our school staff and our leaders is to remain positive and focused on the needs of children when we have all of this what I call critical noise. And when I say critical, I don't mean loving criticism, which every organization thrives on. So we need to have parents coming to school board members and talking to to um, teachers and principals about what schools can do to meet the needs of their students. But the, the level of the criticism has become uh, different, I think, in the last couple of years, right. almost angry in yeah. some ways where we're not problem solving together. It's just become more of a shouting match mm -hmm. in some places. And there are other places where that really isn't happening as much. So what, I don't want to overextend. And, what, and what's what's the root of that? Where, where is that coming from? Is it a, is it a partisan effort by by some in the Republican Party to try to divide uh, parents, teachers, and communities? Yeah, I, I, that's it's so hard to say that there is a partisan effort about that. I, I always assume the best motivations of everybody that we all want Iowa students to thrive and, and do well. Um, but there does appear to be a partisan theme in some of the messaging, mm. and um, and then and then I don't want to paint all uh, in one party with that with that broad brush either. Uh, I think the noise gets attention in the media, and it probably gets attention at school board meetings when people show yeah. up and are angry about certain things. Yeah. And I'll give you one example of that. You know, um, in the 2021 session, there was a bill passed. It's known as House File 802 that this really limits. The Iowa legislature. Yeah, the, the Iowa, Iowa legislature. Mm -hmm. And the governor signed it. And it eliminates the ability of um, teachers in our schools to talk about um, race history. And and it's, it's created some difficulty in interpretation. For example, it says 
critical race theory can't be taught, but that was a theory taught in colleges, not in Iowa high schools. And, and it's just, it's, it's so they, they were banned, difficult they were, to implement. They were banning curricula that wasn't even taught in schools. Right, right. <laughs> well. And, 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 and yet, when they passed that law, they also passed a law that was, and, and you'll remember this process, this is the worst kind of democratic legislative process because it's not very democratic. There's an amendment that's added to a final version of a bill that oh, sure. never goes through right. the committee where the public can see it and lobbyists and experts can weigh in. Okay. And it added compliance with these requirements to part of the accreditation process. So now schools have to demonstrate their policies comply, but there's no guidance from the Department of Education yet on what you do for approving that. So we're just kind of flummoxed as we try and figure out how do we document, you know, the the, the absence of something in uh, showing that we are complying with the law. Documenting the absence of something. That's um. Yeah. 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 So the whole uh, the, yeah, whole, the whole the whole pushback against uh, teaching about any. Any you know any 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 element of racism in American history, you know it's um it's hard not to see that as 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 being as being motivated by a fear of the growing racial diversity of our country. Yeah, you know, again, I just I I hate to attribute um, motivations to things that I haven't seen people uh, express. Right. Um, I, I know that some of the, the talk about that bill was about uh, some concern from folks that we were creating a victim mentality among our minority students. And um, and there was a, you know, how do, how do we give them um, what they need to know that they are an important part of this process without saying that somebody else is to blame for something that happened generations ago? Yeah. Yeah. And it's, it's um, you know, it's complicated stuff, but unfortunately we're we're at this point now where people feel so strongly about things um you know huge extremism on both sides of the equation that's that's kind of tough to to figure figure out how now what do we do with that in the second grade class yeah and i know nationwide i mean this 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 sort of legislative initiative and the 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 conversation that accompanies it and the occasional maybe frequent angry parent who shows up at a school board meeting uh and demands certain things that just uh, you know have never been demanded before. I mean, this this is a nationwide problem, and I know it's uh, probably part of why we've seen a huge number of uh, teachers resigning over the over the uh, summer. I mean, I can't remember the number now, but here in Iowa, the uh, there's a huge number of teachers. I want to say it's six hundred thousand that aren't coming back. Is that, um, is that correct? Am I off what? on that? I, I think that seems like a really – that's not the number in Iowa because we only have about 34,000 teachers in Iowa. Well, silly me. I added a couple zeros, I guess. I added a couple zeros, sorry. But but I will tell you, this, this the teacher shortage is a really important thing to talk about. And it is – you know, I also represent the rural school advocates of Iowa, about 150 of our, our rural districts. Um, and rural schools have had a teacher shortage problem for 10 years, but now it is it is really statewide. We're seeing our urban districts um, mm-hmm. short positions as they're starting school, right. and they don't have enough substitutes to fill in for when teachers are ill or they, they need time to work together. Um, we don't have enough paraprofessionals or teachers' aides that make sure that especially our students with disabilities or our um, our students that need extra help get everything they need to stay safe and engaged during the day. And we're, we're short bus drivers. 
I just got a message today from a superintendent that had to monitor the transportation depot at the end of the day because the transportation director has to go drive a bus. Hmm. And so everybody's kind of filling in with what they can do. Um, so yeah. there is, there's a lot of work to do. And I, and I think that's, that's not completely disassociated with what we just talked about when right. there's a lot of criticism and uh, the staff feels like um, that parents and others really have a, a target on their back. It's, it's kind of hard to um, take on extra work and, and then also encourage people to go into teaching. Yeah. And we really have to do that. We have to change the language about this because it is, right. it should be the most revered profession that we really have. It has it, been in some cultures in the past. Right. And it's, I mean, it was the, uh, when Iowa got to choose this quarter, it was a schoolhouse that was pictured on that quarter because education was right. regarded as so important. Oh, by the way, I did look it up real quick here. Um, more than a half million teachers have left the profession since the start of 2020. So I wasn't that far off. I just had the wrong. No, that's not far. I, yep. had, I had the wrong geography. Yep. <laughs> that's yeah. nationwide. And yeah. we just we just sent out um, a survey to all school districts to kind of gauge some of the reasons that that people know. And there are some districts that have exit service surveys, so they ask their staff when they leave, "Why did you leave?" And it could be to go to a job in a completely different profession mm. for more money. Um, it could be for um, health reasons. And we have some folks that retired because of the pandemic and just decided it was too much and couldn't come back. And I think we had some pent-up uh, retirement where people might have waited a year until we got to the other side of the pand- pandemic as well. So, um, right. it, you know, part of this, I, I would hope it's a blip. I don't think it is. I, I think that we have, we know we have fewer people choosing to go into teaching mm. And by a lot. Yeah. So there was a, the Education so, Commission of the states had a, some data they put together, and they looked at the decade right before the pandemic that ended in 2018. And there are some states, some big states, like Illinois, graduating 54% fewer teachers from teacher yeah. colleges well, so in to, 2018 than they did 10, 10 years earlier. So to what extent is the uh, the epidemic in school school shooting and other related other other violence related to that to what extent is that having an impact on 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 teachers on on, on staff on faculty uh, I mean I, you hear about mm-hmm. schools that are basically you know fortifying themselves against the possible risk of a, of a of an act of violence I mean to what extent is that a serious problem or is it just again more prevalent in the news because it's so horrific um, I, I think that there are certainly some some places, and there are certainly some uh, staff members that have more um, concern, fear, trepidation about that than in other places. Um, I, I do know that there are resources coming from the, the federal government and uh, even supports from the state so that schools are doing inventories of their safety mechanisms so they can figure out what can we do to be safer, and and hopefully those safety precautions will help people feel more at ease about both having their children at school with their parents or teaching in a school environment. Um, you know, we've got again that that political divide and, and extremes on both sides, yeah. um, where where it's really hard to find a middle ground answer to that solution, but I, to that problem. But I, I think we need to have those kinds of what can we do in the middle of the ground solution so that people aren't um, 
aren't so worried that they'll they'll not be able to have mm-hmm. um, you know any any right to firearms at all, as opposed to others who say that you know you should be able to oh I don't know shoot shoot a deer with an uh, AK-47 or whatever it is that the legislature okay. passed this last year. I think if you need an AK-47 to hunt a deer, you probably shouldn't be out hunting at all. <laughs> that's <laughs> my a, opinion. I don't know. I don't know why that one came about. I really yeah, don't. yeah, that was weird. So, um, well, one more question before we go to run to a break. Uh, I, I have long argued that I think the ultimate goal that some on the political right have is to turn public education over to private industry. We've certainly seen privatization in some of our health care delivery uh, systems. We've seen it with nursing homes in a big way. Uh, we've seen it with prisons in some places. And there has been you know, incremental steps toward privatizing K-12 education through the you know, creation of charter schools and, and vouchers. To what extent is that the real and ultimate goal, is to totally privatize the public education system? Well, that, I, I've certainly seen that theme in some of the actions that have been taken. And again, I don't attribute motivations. I, I think there are people who can argue uh, real legitimate processes about how do we make sure that kids have the environment that's right for them. Um, but I always try to focus on the, the data. And, I, and I'll give you one quick example if we have time before you have to take yeah, a break. Yeah, sure. Um, I've, I've heard um, some folks who are uh, supporters of vouchers say that states where they have vouchers improved achievement for their students. So I'll give you an example of Florida. That's one that's cited. And Florida used to be ranked in the middle of the pack on the National Assessment of Education Progress. Now they're near their top. Well, they did a whole bunch of things back in 2013 that changed that. One of those is they passed a law that non-proficient third graders would not pass on to the fourth grade. They'd repeat third grade. Well, fourth grade is where you assess the NAEP test. So if any child who can't read at the right grade level is not then promoted to the next grade level, those non-proficient students are not tested. Mm. They also created um, their voucher program, their education savings accounts, which encouraged students with disabilities to find a private school environment. I think the last data I looked at, you know, somewhere upwards to 64 to 70,000 Students with disabilities are in private schools. They're no longer in the tested group. And if Iowa removed our non-proficient readers and a big chunk of our students with disabilities from the testing experience, we'd rank number one in the country, too. Hmm. So we have to look carefully at the claims (laughs) and try to understand, you know, what is it that, uh, that we're looking at and how do we know things got better for all students? And by the way, Florida also invested heavily in teacher training in the public schools to improve reading at the same time. They started their universal preschool program, and they raised teacher pay. And we also just so, saw the uh, governor of Florida handpick uh, uh, 30 candidates for the school board that support a more radical uh, right perspective on education. So, Oh, well, yeah, and what bag, I'm talking yeah, about when they yeah. made those changes, that's clear back in 2013, predates right. yeah. the current governor yeah. by a long time. yeah. Hey, uh, Margaret, uh, thank you so much for joining us. I really appreciate the opportunity to talk, and, and good to catch up, Ed. Yeah, folks, we've been talking with Margaret Buckton. She's the uh, president of the Urban Education Network. Ed Fallon with you here. When we come back after a short break, uh, we'll be talking about the embarrassing and counterproductive infighting that's going on within many national nonprofit organizations focused on climate change. Uh, on the way out, though, I want to leave you with... Uh, 
a little tune that, well, when it was written, it might have been addressing one problem in education, but uh, when it, you know, but when it comes to, again, what I see, I, I, these aren't Margaret's words at all, they're mine, the radical agenda of the extreme right, uh, I, I, I think this tune might, you know, might be appropriate. We don't need no education. We don't need no thought control. No dark sarcasm in the classroom. Teacher Gateway Market and Cafe is Des Moines' locally owned grocery and specialty food store, centrally located at ML King Parkway and Woodland Ave. Enjoy chef-crafted prepared foods, artisan baked goods, organic produce, hand-cut meats, local and international cheeses, wines, and craft beer. Gateway's Cafe is open for dine-in, carry-out, and delivery service seven days a week. Stop by or visit gatewaymarket.com for more details. Gateway Market. Good food, great community. You're responsible for a lot, and it's easy to become overwhelmed, to feel helpless, even hopeless. What's not so easy is finding your way back to feeling and functioning better. Psychiatrist Dr. David Drake helps individuals and couples throughout Iowa with the convenience and privacy of televideo counseling. Dr. Drake also prescribes medication when needed, and his services are offered on a self-pay basis. If you need help, don't delay. Contact Dr. Drake at daviddrakefamilypsychiatry.com. Vibes Kitchen and Bar in downtown Des Moines at the corner of 13th and Walnut serves clever, creative, modern interpretations of American classic bites and drinks. The Vibes team offers great food and customer service in a relaxed and welcoming atmosphere. Vibes is the perfect place for your party or function, and it's got an outdoor patio ideal for hobnobbing with friends and co-workers or for watching your favorite sports team. Learn more at Vibes Kitchen and Bar's Facebook page. Welcome back to the Family Forum. You know, at a time when big corporations control most of the media, our niche here is more important than ever, so please support what we do. Go to the Fallon Forum website, donate, even better, become a monthly sponsor. And uh, speaking of sponsors, thanks to Vibes Kitchen and Bar, serving creative interpretations of American classic food and drink. They've got a relaxed and welcoming atmosphere and an awesome outdoor patio. Vibes is the perfect place for parties and for watching your favorite sports team. Learn more at Vibe's Facebook page. Have you uh, seen some of the, let's just call it silliness, uh, going on within progressive organizations? Silly is way too mild of a word. Maybe some of the same silliness goes on within organizations on the right. I don't know. I kind of hope so. But uh, <laughs> there was an excellent story this summer in The Intercept, uh, written by Ryan Grimm. I saw him uh, discuss the uh, the story on the Hill as well. Uh, 
So it starts off, the, 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 the article starts off with a look at a meeting of the uh, Goodmacher Institute. Uh, the Goodmacher Institute is um, a leading abortions right group focused pretty much specifically on the research side of that conversation. So Grimm writes, Heather Boonstra, the vice president of public policy, began this meeting by asking how people were, quote, finding equilibrium in response to the killing of George Floyd. Uh, Boonstra talks about the role systemic racism plays in society and the ways that uh, Guttmacher's work might, you know, push back against that. You know, and I certainly see that, you know, as, as those most affected by the, you know, again, it makes sense for Guttmacher and other organizations to do that, to see how their work might respond to the systemic racism that was on full display. Well, it's been on full display many times, but certainly came to a head in the George Floyd killing. You know, because I face it, regarding abortion, restrictive abortion laws tend to really hit the poor and minority communities the hardest. But apparently, you know, staff suggestions that Guttmacher, quote, turned inward, and we know this because, <laughs> because one of the staff people who turned it inward um, published a, uh, you know, publicized that private meeting, and... Uh, <laughs> And, it, well, it was quite a, quite a spectacle. Um, so Grimm writes, Behind Boonstra's and the staff's responses to the killing of George Floyd was a fundamentally different understanding of the moment. For Boonstra, the focus should have been on what could Guttmacher do now to make the world a better place. For her staff, that question had to be answered at home first. What could they do to make Guttmacher a better place? And the way Boonstra saw it, and the way I see it as well, staff were ignoring the mission of the organization and choosing to focus on themselves. Uh, they took this moment of, uh, of, of great public importance, uh, this kind of awakening of consciousness, to use, they used that opportunity to kind of focus on the standard grievances that organizations like, deal with, businesses deal with as well. Uh, and, of course, those were all kind of couched in the terms relevant to social justice. And, uh, you know, and what, another thing Grimm points out in his story, quote, often they, the staff, directed their complaints at leaders of color. Uh, Guttmacher was run at the time by an Afro-Latina woman, Dr. Herminia Palacio. And to quote again from the story, the most zealous ones in my organization when it comes to race are white, said one black executive director at a different organization, asking for anonymity so as not to provoke a response from that staff. You know, and that's been my experience too. Um, the, the loudest voices among the folks that are woke uh, tend to be young, white, middle class. And... Um, not entirely, but to a certain degree, that's 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 true. That's true, I think. And um, I also think it's interesting that this particular black executive director wanted to remain anonymous so as not to provoke a response from staff. Because you know, it's it's been it's well. Let me just get back to the story. It's um it's been crazy, and I maybe the pendulum will swing back. Uh, Bootstra goes on to say, "quote I'm here to talk about George Floyd and the other African American men." 
who had been beaten up by society, not workplace problems. She told staff she was disappointed and they were being self-centered. And the staff was appalled by that. So, you know, again, what happened with Guttmacher is true of the progressive advocacy you know, groups across the board, especially at the, uh, in the national level, what I call the national nonprofit industrial complex. Um, and again, some have said that the national network of progressive groups has basically ceased to function. That might be a bit of a, an overstatement in my opinion. But uh, Grimm goes on to point out, he names a whole, whole, I'll just name a few of the different organizations he mentions, the Sierra Club, the ACLU, Color of Change, the BLM, which is now Movement for Black Lives, Human Rights Campaign, focused on LGBT stuff, and the Sunrise Movement, focused on climate change. And uh, Grimm says, quote, many other organizations have seen wrenching and debilitating turmoil in the past couple of years. In fact, it's hard to find a Washington-based progressive organization that hasn't been in tumult or isn't currently in that state. So, yeah, and uh, I, again, I've never been a big fan of the National Nonprofit Industrial Complex, and I'm probably less of a fan now than ever, given everything that's happening. But uh, one executive director quoted in this story says, quote, to be honest with you, this is the biggest problem on the left during the last six years. It's the elephant in the room that no one wants to talk about. And you have to be super sensitive about who the messengers are. And I'm, I'm just going to say, folks, uh, well, I, I, let's talk about it. Uh, I am not afraid to talk about this. I'm not afraid to be a messenger for this, even though I'm white, male, older, straight, and already been canceled multiple times. Uh, you know, uh, we have to stop pussyfooting around this problem. Uh, you know, we, we have become so self-absorbed, we meaning the movement generally, certainly not everybody, but enough have become so self-absorbed that we're forgetting why we are here. We're not focusing on what we should be doing. And, and again, this story, it's in The Intercept. It's from June. Ryan Grimm is the author. I'll just share some more stuff from it because it really, it really hits home. Uh, Grimm points out that internal affairs ha ha has become nearly all-consuming for some organizations. One former executive director said, quote, my last nine months, I was spending 90 to 95% of my time on internal strife, whereas before that would have been 25 to 30% tops. All right, I'm just going to say that even spending 25 to 30% of your time on internal strife is too much. But 90 to 95%, why even exist? Why do you even exist? I mean, go away. I mean, if that's, if that's what we're going to get from national progressive organizations, they have no reason existing anymore. You know, tear it down, build something new, preferably build it at the grassroots level. Another person quoted in the story says, quote, the toxic dynamic of cancel culture is creating this really intense thing, and no one is able to acknowledge it. No one's able to talk about it. No one's able to say how bad it is. Okay, so yeah, folks, I'm going to say how bad it is and how it needs to be talked about, and it needs to be, it needs to be fixed, you know. Grimm points out that the Sierra Club infighting caused so much internal churn that they stopped being engaged in any serious way at a really critical moment during the Build Back Better climate bill. Yeah, I mean, okay, so Joe Biden wins. Again, Joe Biden, not the, not the president that most progressives wanted. 
certainly not the climate cha- champion that some of us had hoped would be, you know, taking Donald Trump's place. But you got Joe Biden, you got a Democratic House, Democratic Senate, you got real opportunity. I know you've also got Kristen Cinema and uh, Joe Manchin and the filibuster to deal with. But when you don't have the grassroots engaged, well, and maybe I shouldn't even call them the grass. I think if you're a nonprofit, if you're a member organization of the National Nonprofit Industrial Complex and you're headquartered inside the Beltway, no, you're no longer a grassroots group. Sure, some of those groups might have a grassroots network, but I look at the Sierra Club. You know, the National Sierra Club's control over the statewide Sierra Club here, it is appalling what they do here. Uh, and I'm, I'm, I'll, get, I'll get into that in some other programs, folks. But what they do to the state level is ridiculous. And there, there may be some groups. I, you know, I think 350.org tends to be better in terms of uh, uh, not uh, micromanaging what happens at the grassroots level. Again, I hope that doesn't change. But my impression is over the years, and this goes back to the mid-'80s, is that national groups tend to consolidate and they tend to control and they tend to want to strip funding and support from local communities to enrich the national office. I I saw this in a big way back in the 80s. It would have been 1986 or 7 maybe, maybe 7 or 8. I think 87. We'll go with that. And uh, some of us here in Iowa were involved with the peace movement. We were invited to a big national meeting in Cleveland. It was, a, it was a meeting that was supposed to merge the uh, nuclear freeze campaign with, the, with a group called SANE. And that's one of those acronyms I can't even remember because everybody just called the group SANE. It was for a SANE nuclear policy. And we went to this uh, meeting, and it was a two or I think a two, two or three-day affair. And the big gist of it was, we're going to be bigger and better and more powerful if you join with us. Uh, I mean, the national, the two national orgs had already merged, and now they wanted all these local groups to get behind them. Well, you start digging into what they wanted. They wanted access to your mailing list, not just access to it. They wanted to be able to mail to it, to fundraise from your list of supporters several times a year. Uh, you, you started digging into the fine print, and this was a great deal for them. There was very little to be gained by a national, by, by a local organization from what this national merger wanted to do in terms of expansion, in terms of eating up smaller groups. You know, so, you know, the key conclusion in the Intercept piece is that, and I'll quote, the battles between staff and organizational leadership have effectively sidelined major progressive institutions at a critical moment in U.S. and world history. And and again, it's not just a D.C. inside the Beltway problem. Again, I, 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 believe big, I believe bigly, yeah, I'm going to say that, in, in uh, local organizations, grassroots organizations. But you can get some organizations that are focused on the state that are equally ridiculous in terms of where they're at right now. Um, one former leader of a statewide organization, uh, you know, outside the Beltway, but still, you know, connected to that network, you know, said... Um, they, they've seen the same problems here, you know, and now they're seeing, and I'll read from, his, from, their, from their statement, um, many organizations started seeing applicants who wanted to be professional activists. But as we know, there is a big difference between being an organizer and being an activist. 
Organizations have lost something by not recruiting and developing organizers that are more rooted in their communities and have some lived experience relatable to the community they are organizing. You know, and I've seen that with political campaigns, too. I mean, especially in Iowa, where you have, oh, you can have as many as 24 candidates running for president, or more even sometimes. And they all bring in people. Yes, sometimes they hire locally. A lot of times they bring in folks who have no clue what they're doing in Iowa. And I imagine the folks in Nevada, New Hampshire, South Carolina might have the same stories. But, you know, it's this whole idea of the professionalization of social change. If you really, if what you're, if, if you're interested in being a, you know, a career activist, you know, I, I, think, I think you're coming at it from the wrong direction. This is public service. This is this involves personal sacrifice. It involves a willingness to live simply and to uh, kind of address a, you know, a countercultural approach to you know, what, your, what your footprint is within this, um, this, uh, this uh, economy that um, has become kind of our national religion. So I, I think, uh, yeah, you, 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 we, there's this professionalization of the activist community is a big part of the problem. And again, there are people who don't want me, don't want me saying that. Uh, again, one of the things that has been happening is that younger organizers, and I'm not bashing young people, there are some amazing and talented young people out there, but some feel like internal organization changes is that that's, that's how they can exercise power. That's how they can get immediate results. So instead of, you know, focusing on the hard fought you know, very gradually won long-term gains that come with grassroots organizing over the decades. You know, you focus on what you can get immediately within your organizational structure. And again, it's, it, this is not hypothetical. This is basically, as some have said, and maybe, maybe exaggerating a little bit, shutting down the effectiveness of progressive organizations inside the Beltway at a time when we need them more than ever. So, you know, again, my experience running campaigns, I always paid people well. And, you know, maybe that's, maybe that's the start. Yeah, I, I, and this is not to say there are not problems within, within, within uh, nonprofit groups. Yeah, there certainly have been nonprofit groups that take advantage of their staff. I get that. And I get that with, um, with campaigns. Certainly you see it with campaigns when they expect people to work 70, 80 hours a week. I never did that with my campaigns. They always paid people uh, way more than they would have gotten at any other campaign. And I always made sure they had at least a weekend off. Well, if it wasn't the weekend, then maybe a Sunday and a Monday. You know, and uh, so, you know, maybe that's, where, maybe that's where these organizations should start focusing on is not paying their head, head dogs so much money and start paying the activist organizers a decent wage, you know, decent benefits, uh, and then try to you know try to find that as a compromise position to being able to move away from you know extensive navel gazing and back into uh, addressing the issues that really matter. You know, and I looked at some of the uh, CEO pay in nonprofit organizations at the national level. Sierra Club pays its top dog three hundred grand. Green pay, Greenpeace three hundred one thousand dollars. The Natural, National Natural Resources Defense Council, 534 grand for their top guy. Nature Conservancy, 818,000. I'm sorry, folks. Those aren't social change salaries. Those are corporate salaries. And if that's what you 
If you want a corporate salary, go work for a corporation. If you really want to change the world, then get used to living on a heck of a lot less and finding a way to, to, to live like a working person. All right? And by the way, in case anybody's wondering, my salary as director of Bold Iowa, zero. And I'm very happy about that. I'm here to do the work, and I wish more of these nonprofit groups would focus on what we're here fighting for, not the internal stuff, um, not the feel-good stuff. Um, <laughs> uh, again, not internal navel-gazing, but looking at the big problem, the big, the big picture of the world, and what really needs to happen. All right, that's my rant for the day, folks. I'll be back in a few minutes with more conversation here on the Fallon Forum. Gateway Marketing Cafe is Des Moines' locally-owned grocery and specialty food store. With over 5,000 items to choose from, you can order groceries online, and the Gateway team will bring them to you curbside. It's a convenient way to shop from anywhere and save time. Gateway's Cafe is open for dine-in, carry-out, and delivery service seven days a week, with catering and floral services also available. Visit gatewaymarket.com for more details. Gateway Market, good food, great community. At Westrom Optometry, Dr. Joel Westrom and his team provide a variety of services, including comprehensive eye exams, children's eye exams, and LASIK co-management. Whether strictly utilitarian or a fashion statement, your comfort and vision are Westrom's primary concern. Dr. Westrom and his staff will work closely with you to determine the best solution for your eyes, prescription, and lifestyle. Services are provided in English and Spanish, and the clinic is open Monday through Friday from 9 a.m. till 5 p.m. and on Saturdays by appointment. That's Westrom Optometry, located in Des Moines East Village. Welcome back to the Fallon Forum. You know, you can support this alternative to the shock jocks by becoming a monthly donor or a business sponsor. Check out the Fallon Forum website for details. Speaking of sponsors, thanks to Western Optometry located in Des Moines East Village. Dr. Joel Westrom and his staff are fluent in English and Spanish. And the clinic is open from Monday through Friday from 9 a.m. until 5 p.m. and on Saturdays by appointment. That's Western Optometry. Thanks also to psychiatrist Dr. David Drake. If you live in Iowa, wherever you live in Iowa, Dr. Drake can help through the convenience and privacy of televideo counseling offered on a self-pay basis. Contact daviddrakefamilypsychiatry.com. All right, so a new study out. I mean, we really don't need any more studies, do we, on climate change? But there will be more, and that's okay. Uh, maybe they'll convince someone to begin to take it more seriously. But a new study out reveals they, uh, that we should expect a, quote, extreme heat belt from Texas north upward to Illinois and Iowa. Uh, the heat index in that extreme heat belt could reach 125 degrees Fahrenheit at least one day a year by 2053. Now, one thing I've learned um, about climate scientists is that they are always right about what happens, but they're almost always wrong about how quickly it happens. So I, I look at 2053 there and I'm thinking, well, maybe they made, maybe they should flip the five and the three around. Maybe we'll start seeing that by 2035, who knows? But at any rate, it's coming. 125 degrees Fahrenheit 
that again that includes the heat index that's not the actual temperature but the heat in index counts for a lot so the big picture is according to this study is that uh, this is the uh, study done by the first street foundation that um, in just 30 years climate change will cause the lower 48 states to be far hotter and a more precarious place to live in the summertime um, and this uh, this study was done based on a what's called a hyperlocal analysis of current and future extreme heat events. So they really dug into, you know, I mean, very 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 small units of geography. Uh, the study points out that as average temperatures increase due to human-driven greenhouse gas emissions, mainly from the burning of fossil fuels or energy, instances of extreme heat are forecast to escalate. Uh, and the report actually, again, because it's hyper-local, it makes clear where households will be most vulnerable to what would now be considered almost unheard of and unbearable heat indexes. So, again, First Street's um, peer-reviewed model uh, shows that the number of Americans currently exposed to extreme heat is 8 million. That's enough. But due to the anticipated warming during the next three decades, that number is expected to balloon to 107 million people. Uh, and by 2030, many coastal areas in the southeast and mid-Atlantic may also experience days with a heat index above 125 degrees Fahrenheit. So, you know, and this is a good study. It's a scary study. Um, it points out too that within the um, the heat belt of the mid the, the the middle the middle of the country, the states likely to see the greatest growth in dangerous days include Louisiana, and Missouri. And uh, Florida is on the list too. And then the counties with the largest changes in dangerous days between 2023 and 2053 are mainly located in Florida, led by Miami-Dade and then Broward and Palm Beach counties. So. And this is all, I mean, I'm glad they did the study. I hope it, again, convinces someone, preferably someone with the capacity to enact policy changes that are going to be broad-reaching and effective. I hope it reaches them and makes them think about this. But, my, you know, I want to say two things. One, who, who, we, know, we know this. We know this is coming. Anybody who's been paying attention and accepts science and reads even a little bit once in a while, knows this is coming. But what this article doesn't say, and my beef with, I mean, not so much, I mean, this article is just laying out the study. This is what was done, blah, blah, blah. It doesn't, you know, dig into a lot of the impacts. What bothers me about most of what you see in the mainstream media on climate change is they talk about this, and they talk about how, well, people will die because of exposure to heat, and we already see that happening. Uh, they talk about the increased use of air conditioning, uh, talk about how it's going to impact water usage. Um, but, very, you know, rarely do you see a discussion about the impact on food production. And I can tell you, as an urban farmer, even though this summer didn't hit crazy hot temperatures, I mean, we had, we had way more days above 90 than we normally do. We had, I think, a couple that hit 100. And we did have heat index, the heat index rose to maybe 105 to 110 on a couple days. Even just that change was really, really hard on our crops. And again, we irrigate, we water. So we, 
we don't have the problem of, uh, you know, of, of drought affecting our crops. But you know, even without that, you, you look at, for example, the potato crop. I mean, we, I'm an Irishman. I know how to grow potatoes. We've been growing, between Kathy and I, we've been growing potatoes for a total of uh, most of a century. Uh, <laughs> if you add up, I mean, I've been growing them since what? 1982 potatoes. That's, uh, what, 40 years. So we're probably, okay, maybe closer to half a century. They really struggled this year. And we, we eliminated all the things that we weren't doing wrong. And we realized the only thing that it really could be is heat, excessive heat. Because these, I mean, think about it, potatoes. They come from the Andes, Peru. They grow well in Ireland. Uh, so they don't, they don't, they're not particularly crazy about hot weather. But they always do okay in 80s, maybe a few 90s. But, you know, this year, it just, um, yeah, they, they, they really struggled. And I think what we realize we have to do next year is to, be, is to begin to mulch the plants extensively when they first you know, sprout up to maybe half, half a foot tall. And then probably create some kind of a protective screen over them so that they don't always, they, they don't bear the full effect of the, uh, of the um, midday sun. But, you know, how, how much of that can you do and survive? You know, how much can you expect your crops to, uh, to survive in that kind of conditions? Now, later in the program, Kathy Burns is going to join me. We're going to be talking about five ancient crops that might be well, actually, one of them, I think, is not ancient. But five crops, most of them ancient, that might be effective in the new climate era. Uh, potatoes is unfortunately not one of them. But uh, for small, grower, small growers, perhaps there are ways of, uh, of creating um, environments where they can still survive. But I just wish some of these stories that look at these, I mean, we have lots of great research happening. Every week there's some new study we could talk about on the show that makes it really clear that Climate change is kicking our butts. And again, the specific analysis from this study is that heat belt is really going to nail the upper Midwest, or the upper Midwest, the, uh, the, the middle of the country through the upper Midwest in a really bad way. And so uh, I don't know. I don't know if you can grow potatoes when the heat index hits 125 degrees. We don't know. I don't know. Does anybody know? Uh, I, I don't know how tomatoes will pollinate when uh, the tomatoes have a hard time pollinating when it gets above 90 degrees, you know, for, for people raising, you know, rabbits or chickens, uh, how do you how do you keep them cool enough in hot weather? I mean, we're already struggling to keep our rabbits cool enough. I mean, the, the poor little devil's got to wear a fur coat year round, you know. But we've been innovative. We have fans. We have uh, frozen water bottles. We have uh, we spray their ears. We have them in the shade. That's probably the most important thing. And yeah, they made it through the summer. And again, despite having, you know, I think many, many more days than we usually have above 90 degrees. But um, how much more, yeah, how, at what point, I mean, maybe we all, maybe we should only be building homes underground. No more above ground homes, just built underground. You know, that's where it's going to be cool down there. I, I know it makes you feel a little bit like a like a hobbit or, or a groundhog, but um, you know maybe maybe that's maybe that's a thing of the future that we got to be thinking about now. Places you can live without being so overcome by the heat that you just don't survive. But again, all that all that matters. But what what I what I come back to there's three things that we really 
have to prioritize. And they all involve the number three. One is air. If you don't breathe uh, for three minutes, you're dead. Water. If you don't drink for three days, you're dead. Food. If you don't eat for three weeks, you're dead. And those, those three things ought to be higher priorities when we talk about the changing climate. And I would say especially water. I mean, air, you know, air quality is an issue for sure, especially in some places. But you look all over the world, and especially here in this country, in the, in the West, water is a huge concern right now. Uh, and I, I don't see how the West survives at it, in its current, its current structure with, it, with as many people as, as live in those states with the water situation going the direction it is. But I, I, I just keep, as a farmer, I guess, I just keep bringing it back to food. I'd like to see more conversation about the impact that these changes have on food production. We're already seeing problems with food distribution. You know, the, uh, the supply chain, chain disruptions have caused a lot of problems. And uh, those, I think, are, they're, they're going to get worse, but they get, even, they get even more serious. They become life and death matters when we talk about whether or not food can actually be grown in a heat index of 125 degrees Fahrenheit. Folks, this is Ed Fallon. We're going to come back from a short break. On a positive note, I can always count on Kathy Burns to make everybody smile. If I can't do it, she can do it. She's going to join me for our farm and food segment, and we're going to discuss the five crops that might be really, really good to be growing in the new climate era. Architecture by Synthesis provides planning, design, and design-build services for high-performance, low-maintenance, affordable homes and buildings. Owner Mark Klipsham is adamantly and actively committed to supporting the mission of the Fallon Farm and community radio stations. Mark knows we must all live and work with the goal of building better health for both people and planet. And he works to implement that vision through his stewardship of Architecture by Synthesis. You can learn more at architecturebysynthesis.com. At Story County Veterinary Clinic, Dr. Kim Holding has over 30 years of experience working with all creatures great and small. Cat, dog, horse, cow, elephant. Well, if you've got a pet elephant, you may be in trouble. Kim's clients stick with her year after year because they know she'll do right by them and their pets and farm animals. So give Kim a shout to keep your animals happy and healthy. Call 515-232-8766. That's 232-8766. Well, hey, y'all, welcome back to the Fallon Forum. Ed Fallon with you here. You know, you can support this alternative to those crazy shock jocks by becoming a monthly donor, or you could be a small business or nonprofit sponsor as well. And speaking of sponsors, thanks to Story County Veterinary Clinic. That's run by Dr. Kim Holding, and she has been caring for large and small animals for over 30 years. You can learn more at Story County Veterinary Clinic's Facebook page. With me now, Kathy Burns. We've been talking a lot about climate change, uh, the probability of days that will have a heat index of 125 degrees. Some stuff just won't grow very well, but Kathy's been doing some research and looking into five crops that might fare well in the new climate era. I hope you're hungry because we're going to talk about food. 
<laughs> well, it depends what you're going to be talking about. <laughs> I think some of them sound pretty interesting, pretty fun. Uh, we saw this article in The Guardian, and there was uh, a list of five foods that are either naturally and from ancient times resistant to excessive heat, drought, that kind of thing, or that are being developed into a crop that can do well. Um, the article really talks about um, the, the um, challenges of growing in hot weather, and it talks about these, these new crops. Tell me about these crops. What are they called? The first one's called amaranth. And I think it's a very pretty plant. <laughs> well, then let's eat it. <laughs> <laughs> it the seeds have been around uh, or found in archaeological sites in Argentina dating back as much as 8,000 years. Mm. So it's believed to have been originally cultivated by the Aztecs. So why, why, why have we not continued to grow this wonderful plant? Well, although it's drought resistant, uh, eight feet tall, and every part of the plant is edible, mm -hmm. Nutritionally, it's very sound. The, the wild thing is, when Spanish colonizers in the Americas uh, started doing all the stuff they were doing, they banned <laughs> the Aztecs and the Maya from growing the plants. So kind of a similar thing to what uh, English yes. descended colonizers did up here, kill the buffalo, kill off the food supply. That's right. Yeah. That's right. Okay, and so it's got to be a good thing. However, some uh, of those folks did... So the plants kept growing in odd spaces as weeds, and people who knew what it was were saving seeds and passed it on to such a time. I've seen amaranth, amaranth growing on a at a at a, at a, um, at a at a reservation in Nevada, I believe, and I was impressed with its. I mean, it grows so well in mm -hmm. a hot, dry climate. So yeah, I get that. And the mm -hmm. seeds are similar to uh, buckwheat or quinoa. Okay, right. So what else we got? Phonio. Never heard of it. Uh, neither had I. <laughs> it's fun to say. Phonio. It's a kind of millet. Okay. Uh, it ha seems to have a nuttier taste than a lot of other grains. Used to be called hungry rice by the Europeans because it was what people who couldn't afford better stuff would eat, it seems. Oh, kind of like the uh, starving Irish in the 1800s would regard turnips. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Um, it is considered to be Africa's oldest cultivated cereal. And although the Europeans called it hungry rice, it was regarded in Africa by some as the food of chiefs and kings. Yeah, well, you know, we've seen that with, with the lobster as well. Lobsters were the food of the poor at one time, and then suddenly we realized, hey, they're not just bottom feeders. Bugs. They're a delicacy. They're big bugs. Big bugs. Yeah, so and delicious a lot of this butter. is just your perspective. Mm -hmm. and so this is, again, a, I presume a, a grain that can grow well in hot and dry conditions. Right. And it's also a great source of amino acids. And for people who want to and need to be gluten-free, it is mm. is an important source of food for them. Uh, and, and it wouldn't be good for bread making, though. No. Because you need that gluten to stretch. So what else bread. we got on the list? Cowpeas. Uh, also known as black-eyed peas. I've grown them before. I like them. Okay. I like them, too. Um, the production of them has declined in the U.S. since, say, the 1940s when it was a big deal. Although in the 40s, most of that was used for livestock feed. But really? It, yeah. Mm. 
Yeah, but uh, I think of it as kind of a southern thing, the Black Eyed Pea, right? Yeah, I, 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 again, I only grew them one year, but they did well, and we enjoyed them. They're a great source of protein. They're largely drought-resistant, and at Tennessee State University, a team is studying the introduction of cowpeas to Latin America as an alternative to beans like pinto and black beans that might soon yeah. be now, difficult to grow. i got to admit, I like pinto and black bean better, but if they don't grow in the new climate era, then we'll just get used to cowpeas. I was surprised to learn that pinto and, and black beans might become less able to be grown yeah. as the climate increases. No, no, no cowpeas are, are essentially a bean, correct? <laughs> yes. Okay. A so legume. we got two more and two minutes to cover. What do we got? Taro. And taro is a root vegetable kind of like a potato. It's supposed to have a sweet, nutty flavor similar mm. to, and this sounds good, combination of chestnuts mm. and potatoes. That sounds very good, actually. Right. For a long time, it was grown in Southeast Asia and Polynesia. still is. It's being developed by scientists not to withstand heat and drought, like the crops we've been discussing so far, but to survive better in the colder winters so of the United States. So it's a perennial? You know, they talked about it being huh. a perennial, but I'm not, I don't know. I'll have to look into that. Interesting. I'll have to look into that more. That, yeah, that may be worth taking a look into. Well, okay. the the difficulty, though, um, taro presents some challenges for introducing to new people because it. when I read about the how you have to peel it under running oh. water, wearing gloves, oh, uh, that really? sounded like kind of a drag. Uh-huh. Um, yeah. There is uh, 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 There are crystals of calcium oxalate just beneath the peel. It's sticky, it's bitter, it can cause irritation to your skin and throat, so you have to parboil the, the, the taro before you get you know can peel it and get rid of the sticky oh. stuff and consume it. It doesn't sound great, yeah. <laughs> to be honest with you, but... I guess you know our, our choices may be limited in the uh, in the new climate era. We'll see. Well, the last one, Kernza, sounds yeah. like kernel or something. Yeah. So, um, so it's not an ancient crop, but it has ancient roots. It's a wheat-like grain that's being cultivated specifically to withstand climate change. So since the 1980s, it's been developed. Um, as a perennial cereal crop, which is cool. So it's related to wheat? Mm-hmm. Okay. The hope is that it could eventually serve as a substitute for the traditional summer wheat, which doesn't develop well above 80 degrees yeah, Fahrenheit. Above 80 degrees Fahrenheit, which mm-hmm. is like every day this summer in Iowa. Right. And right. probably also in North Dakota where a lot of wheat is raised. And since wheat is one of the main three crops that yeah. feeds the world... Yeah. That's pretty important. Well, that's interesting stuff. Um, we should experiment with one of these crops. I'm thinking cowpeas. Cowpeas. <laughs> taro. I was going with, gonna go with taro until you started. The sticky yeah, crystal the, yeah. oxal. Yeah, yeah, okay. We'll let, other, we'll let other people experiment with okay. that one. Hey, uh, thanks to my guest today, Margaret Buckton, and to our production team of Sherry Herdina, Kathy Burns, Charles Goldman, Forrest Detterman, and myself, Ed Fallon. Thanks to our local small business partners. Uh, Dr. David Drake Family Psychiatry, Western Optometry, Story County Veterinary Clinic, Architecture by Synthesis, Vibes Kitchen and Bar, and Gateway Marketing Cafe. Thanks also to our nonprofit partners, Bold Iowa and Birds and Bees Urban Farm. Remember, folks, your support for this program matters. Go to the Fallon Forum website to learn more about what you can do to help make a difference. Thanks again. We'll be back next week with another hour of Cutting Edge Talk Radio.